I don't remember what I learned in kindergarten. I remember a tall blonde girl. But I suspect that what I learned was something like that uh, little writing that came out a few years ago from Robert Fulgham, All I Needed to Know, All I Really Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. Share everything. Play fair. Don't hit people. Put things back where you found them. I didn't learn that one quite yet. Uh, Clean up your own mess. Yeah, still working on that one. Don't take things that aren't yours. (laughs) Say you're sorry when you hurt somebody. Wash your hands before you eat. Flush. Warm cookies and cold milk are good for you. I definitely learned that one. Live a balanced life. Learn some and think some and draw and paint and sing and dance and play and work every day some. Take a nap every afternoon. When you go out into the world, watch for traffic. Hold hands and stick together. You know, the Apostle Paul is going to talk about some really big difficulties. Really big by our estimation of big in the book of 1 Corinthians. But the very first thing he's going to talk about lays a foundation for a church or any group of Christians to work on those big things. And it kind of goes along with hold hands and stick together. It's the theme of unity. The Apostle Paul looked at the church in Corinth and he said, man, you've got stuff that is really messed up, things you really need to work on. But more than anything, you need to first of all start at working together. A church must be working together before they can work on anything. Same could be said true of a husband and wife, of a family, of a group of Christians. We must be working together before we can work on anything. Please follow as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Right up front, what Paul tells us in verse 10 here is is the practice of unity. How is unity lived out? And it's lived out by devotion to Christ. Look at verse 10. I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing, that there be no divisions, that you be perfectly joined in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
I want to look at these three words, uh, mind, judgment, and speak, and really begin there. And I'm going to reorder them from the way they're in the text and the way that might logically flow for us thinking about creating a new character in our life. The word mind here just is referring to how we think and what we believe. Um, That's fairly simple. You know, it's the thoughts that we think. The word judgment has to do with the application of thoughts. Some translations translate this word opinion. Now, the problem with the word opinion in English is it means to us something that's really flexible and personal as opposed to the word judgment indicates we have evaluated and come to a conclusion. And so uh, the word judgment is used in several translations like the New King James, and I think that's good. We think about things, and then we apply those thoughts, and we speak about those things, the expression of those thoughts. And so first of all, we need to have the mind of Christ. If there's going to be unity among any group of Christians, we need to think with the mind of Christ. We need to have the mind of Christ. Now, the content of these thoughts is not like the surface of life as in whether the 49ers or the Seahawks are going to win today. Duh. We all know that God loves the Seahawks. <laughs> Man, talk about talking about and talking about and talking about. Can't wait till we actually see. That's the stuff of the surface of life. Okay, and there's nothing wrong with talking about that. I get that. But when he says, what are you thinking? And are you thinking with the mind of Christ? He's going beyond just the surface things. He's not saying that when Christians come together, in fact, let, let's just take a straw poll. Okay, admit it. Raise your hand if you're a 49. If you're rooting for the 49ers today, raise your hand. There you go. <laughs> okay. Okay, we're going to have a little church discipline later. Okay. God is not saying we have to think the same thing about football. Okay, I'm going to say a little heresy here because it doesn't matter. Football matters to our economy, and of course, there are some fine Christian people who use that as a platform for a testimony. That's wonderful. God is not saying we have to think the same thing about football or or about what color the pastor should wear, or a lot of other surface things. He's not saying you've got to think the same that way. He is saying you've got to think the same about the stuff that matters. We have to have the mind of Christ. Let's look at some examples of the mind of Christ. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Jesus Christ, What is that like-mindedness? That you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, therefore receive one another just as Christ also received us. What is the mind of Christ here? The mind of Christ is that when someone walks in the door of this church, we say, welcome, we're glad to have you. We don't look at them and say, you're not dressed quite right. You have a decoration I don't like. You have sin that's undealt with. No. 
we say, we are glad to have you. Just like Jesus welcomed us. God, Jesus didn't say, now Lunsford, clean up your life and then maybe I'll save you. He received us as we were and he worked with us from there. That's the mind of Christ. And so, let me just go back in our country to a day when people of color were not welcome in white churches. That was not the mind of Christ. Our fellowship of churches, which is called the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, back in the 60s had a group of black churches come and they said, we want a fellowship with you. And they said, well, we'll support you financially, but there won't be any fellowship. Okay, that is not the mind of Christ. And I'm using that example because that's kind of an easy one right now for us because we're all going, oh, yes, that's terrible, that's terrible. And it is. I don't mean to demean that. And our fellowship apologized to them a few years ago and reestablished fellowship, just so you know. But there are many things in our lives in which we need to look and say, am I thinking like Jesus? That's what makes a church unified so that as we consider something, we say, how are we thinking about this issue? We should be thinking the same thing, not because we're all robots and walk in a straight line, but because God has a mind and he expresses it through his word. And so we need to think the mind of Christ. Here's another example of the mind of Christ. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that tell us about the mind of Christ? It tells us that God knows we are not perfect, and yet he received us. Christ didn't reject us because we weren't perfect. Philippians 2.5, another example of the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. What is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is saying, I'm going to put myself in second place and you in first place to care for you in a godly way. That is, those are some examples of the mind of Christ. He came to serve others. The mind of Christ has to do with Issues of the Christian life, which are based on issues of doctrine. For instance, we could go to John 3 and say, what is the mind of Christ about salvation? The mind of Christ is, you must be born again. There's no doubt that in John chapter 3, Jesus looked right at a very religious man and said, you need to be born again. And as all of Scripture is unfolded, we understand that means to believe in Christ and the work that he did on the cross, I need to believe that in order to be saved. That is the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, he said, there is coming a day when God will judge the world. We could go on and on at length about the mind of Christ. That's really what we do every week here. We try to say, what is the mind of Christ on this or this or this? But as we come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we understand that we need to have the mind of Christ in order to have unity. 
Now, what else? Let's think about the Corinthian church just a minute. And let's think about us. The Corinthian believers were relatively new believers. And they came out of a proud and arrogant society. They would not have had a value on humility. They didn't come to church thinking, how can I serve the body of believers? They came to church thinking, how can I be puffed up and elevated so that everybody can see my greatness? Now we look at that thought and we go, really, Pastor Dave, that's really how they thought? We read the book of 1 Corinthians, it becomes really obvious that's how they thought. Now why did they? Were they more wicked than us? No, they just walked right in off of their street, so to speak. Their society was that way. And they got saved and came to Jesus and they believed in Jesus as their savior, but that pride of life came with them and they struggled with it. And so they, when they lived in that pride, that was not the mind of Christ. Many of them did not come to Christ out of, uh, not very many of them came to Christ out of the Jewish faith in which they would have learned some morality, as we would call it today. The Corinthian city, remember, as we talked about it, was very immoral. Hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes. That was part of their culture. And so when they came into the church, they didn't come in thinking sex outside of marriage is wrong. That wasn't the common morality. They came in thinking, well, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but in all these other areas... uh, just the way we live. And it affected their judgment as a church. What else could we be thinking besides the mind of Christ? We could be thinking like the church down the street, which thinks it's perfectly acceptable for people to carry on a homosexual lifestyle. We could be thinking like many churches do, that abortion is perfectly within a woman's rights. It's her body, she can do as she pleases. And we think, really? Churches really think that way? They do. But they think that way because they have not come to a point of saying, what is the mind of Christ? That is the starting point. And from the mind of Christ, we go to the judgments of Christ. Now again, the word judgment, the word judgment, these are, there are some hard words to choose here because the word judgment to us also implies being harsh and negative and I'm judging you and you're no good and I'm good. That's not what this is about. This is about judgment-like after church, if you had parked across the street, you might walk with your family to the edge of the sidewalk and you would look both ways and up and down and you would judge when it is appropriate to go across. You, look, you take all the facts and the laws and the crosswalk and your children's speed of walking and all, you take all of that into account and you make a decision. That's the judgment that's being talked about here. It's, it's thinking everything through. Now, why is that important? It's important because in the Christian life, not everything is decided by an absolute of God. There are many absolutes in the New Testament. Do not lie, but tell the truth. That is an absolute. There does not need to be a discussion in your head. Should I tell the truth or should I lie here? 
That's an absolute. Sex outside of marriage, absolute. Marriage to anything but a man, one man and one woman, that's an absolute. There's all these absolutes, but there are things that are not so absolute. We have some examples of them in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as, as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Now what's that mean? In this passage, and we'll come to it in 1 Corinthians 7, let me just give you a summary. These people had asked a question to say, is it okay to get married? When he uses the word virgin, he's talking about an unmarried woman. And that's from two perspectives, the perspective of the woman and the perspective of the parents who had a high degree of control in that society. And so obviously there was some talk going on saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to let my daughter get married ever. And probably the daughter was there going, oh, daddy, 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 come on. And so they wrote to Paul and they said, Paul, what about this? And the apostle Paul wrote back and he says, there is no commandment. Now, what does that mean? It means it's not wrong to get married. I got bad news for you. It's not bad in that culture, in that day, for that dad to say no. But what does he say? What he really says is, I'm going to give you my judgment. And you know what he goes on to say? He says, this is going to be a hard time. The Apostle Paul knew that there was persecution and there's going to be more persecution. And he said, if you get married, it's going to be harder because you're going to be concerned for your family and for your own personal life. And so he said, my judgment, my opinion is, it's better not to get married if you can do it and be happy. And then he, he also says, you remember this famous verse, it's better to marry than to burn with desire. That's in that same context. And so there are some absolutes, but there was this judgment. Now what does that mean to us when we read the scripture this way? It means it's not an absolute from God, but it is a, a very carefully thought out evaluation of all of the circumstances. And there are things like that that need to be decided. Here's an interesting use of this concept of judgment. <clears throat> the, the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, a man named Philemon, and the man Philemon had had a servant who stole from him and ran away. Then he got saved, and he's being sent back. Paul says, you need to go back and make things right. And Paul said, I really want this servant, Onesimus, to stay with me. I want him to be my helper. But without your consent or judgment, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed might not be done by compulsion. He says, Philemon, and the, the book is full. It's a great little book, one chapter. He says, Philemon, you know that you owe me your, your soul, your life. In other words, Paul had led him to Christ. And he said, I could come to you and say, I command you to give him to me. But he said, I'm not doing that, even though I'm an apostle. I'm saying, I want you to look at all of the circumstances and decide that this is a good thing. I want your consent. I want your judgment. Here's another use of the concept of judgment. 
Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and then let him eat or evaluate, make a judgment about yourself. In other words, when we come to the Lord's table, we know we're supposed to stop and say, where am I with the Lord? I'm supposed to evaluate my life and and I'm supposed to respond to what the Lord tells me and I'm supposed to confess if there's things that need to be confessed. We need the judgment of the Lord. Bad judgment in this community of believers led them not to confront people living in adultery. They saw these people living in sexual sin that were in their church, and they said, should we say something? Nah, let's not say anything. That was a bad judgment. Bad judgment led some of these people to come to a church dinner and, and eat until they felt like thanksgiving and drink until they had drank too much while some people stood over and waited for them to get done so they could have the communion service together. And the scripture says some of you are overstuffed and some of you are hungry. You think, why would people do that? Why wouldn't people share their food? Bad judgment. They said, you know, in society, there's some slaves and there's some people who have stuff and I'm one of the people that has stuff. Tough for you. And you go, wow, that's really bad. But that's based on evaluating the scripture and the circumstances and making a judgment. And of course, you're thinking like Christ would be thinking, hey, share your food. And that is what the Apostle Paul told them. He told them their judgment was wrong. Bad judgment was why these people were prideful about their abilities to serve the Lord. They get up in church and speak in tongues because the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, put it into them. Somebody else would get up and interpret that and say, here's a message from the Lord. And when they sat down, they went, yeah. Who just spoke in tongues? This guy. That's how they were. And it was because their judgment was wrong. They weren't thinking right, and they weren't evaluating things right. And that's what the Apostle Paul is going to correct as he writes this book. The third thing that we need here, not only the the mind of Christ, the judgment of Christ, but we need to speak the words of Christ. The, The word speak here means more than just the sound that comes out of your mouth. He's not saying it, you know, when you flap your gums and the words come out. It has to do with the whole thinking process and communicating process. Turn to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and let's look at an example here. Here is an example of something the Corinthians said together. Okay? Now, you're going to have to try to picture... A church and a church acting and what they say. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. The word Gentile is a synonym for an unbeliever. Such, such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up or proud and have not rather mourned or grieved 
that he who has done this thing might be taken away from you. What did the Corinthian church say about the situation of sexual immorality that's described here? What was their collective speak? Thumbs up. That's right. It's okay. You know, we're all sinners. Tough. Sorry, bud. You know, whatever. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. It was something like that. And the Apostle Paul says, verse 3, even though I'm absent, all I needed to do was hear about what's going on. For though I am absent in body but present spirit, I have already judged as though I were present. Now again, the judgment is acceptable when it's based on the mind of Christ. I have already judged as though I were present, him who has done this, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Whoa, is that harsh? When was the last time you came to church and they said, uh, we're going to commit brother so-and-so to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? Boy, <laughs> we're all paying attention now. <laughs> you see, let's turn it around and say, what did Paul say they should say to him? In Cindy's words, thumbs down. <laughs> That's wrong. Stop it. And if you won't stop, we're going to put you out of the church. We're not going to fellowship with you if you are unrepentant and rebellious in your sin. You see, it's a, it's a collective speak based on a collective thinking and a collective evaluating of the circumstances. I can enjoy McDonald's for breakfast, and you can hate it. That's okay. The Lord will help you. <laughs> I can like brown, and you can like blue. I can say my grandkids are the cutest, and you can say no, they're not. Mine are. But when we speak about life and eternity and the stuff that really matters, we need to speak with the voice of Christ based on the mind of Christ. We need to think the same thing. Now, I, I'm not so... Deluded as to think the body of Christ, this local body, will ever be completely 100% in the mind of Christ. You know why? Because there's always new believers coming in. There's always unbelievers who are fellowshipping with us on their way to becoming believers. And so it's a constant process. But as a group, as a leadership, as a core, as a membership, we have got to think like Christ and then speak and judge out of that thinking. And when we do, there will be unity. Now look with me at, at what got in the way of unity in this church. Back in chapter 1, the roadblock to unity, I, would, I just summarized it up in the word arrogance. Arrogance is essentially when you think you're better than somebody else. Look at verse 11. Verse 10, he says, please come together in this thinking and judging and acting. Verse 11, for it has been declared to me concerning 
you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions or divisions among you. Now this I say, is Christ divided? Excuse me, verse 12. Now I say this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ. They were starting to divide up into groups. The word contention means tear. It, 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 it doesn't mean split and go your separate ways. It means between parts of the body of Christ, there were tears. The word was used of, of a tear in a piece of cloth or something like that. And he said, there, there are these tears coming in the body of Christ. Why? Because of attachment to certain ways of thinking and acting and teaching. Can you hear them? I just love that Apostle Paul. He is so smart and plain spoken. He led me to Jesus, you know. He was the first missionary, you know. All of us Greeks are fans of Paul. He gave up on those uppity Jews and preached the gospel to us when he came to Corinth. You know that, right? Yeah, I know what you're saying about Paul, but I'm sorry. He doesn't hold a candle to Pastor Apollos. He's from Alexandria, Egypt. They are so sophisticated there. He grew up studying the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and he was a disciple of John the Baptist. John the Baptist baptized him. He is such an eloquent speaker. I just love coming to church when he's preaching. Well, true enough, Paul was the first preacher, and Apollos was very well spoken, but neither of them hold a candle to Peter. You know he preached the first Christian message, right? The first Christian sermon. And you know 3,000 people got saved. Have you ever heard of 3,000 people getting saved at once? That guy is the bomb. Not only that, you know he lives in the Jewish way. All of us Jewish people love Peter because he lives in the Jewish way. He doesn't eat any of that meat sacrifice to idols. And then there was a brother who said, well, I'm, I'm sure you all have your reasons. You love Paul, you love, you love Apollos, you love Peter. I don't follow any men at all. I just follow Jesus Christ. Personally, every man that ever lived disappointed me except Jesus. And, and humans are always imperfect. And, and, and actually, I don't even go to church anymore because none of those elders match up to Jesus. I just follow Jesus. Now, that's what, something like that is what was going on in the Corinthian church. And when people came to church, they, they got in their groups. Maybe they got in groups by house churches. And of course, the, the starting point for our understanding of their problem and our situation is this, there's nothing wrong with loving the guy who led you to Jesus. There's nothing wrong with, with loving some teacher who really got through to you. There's nothing wrong with loving the person who holds that office because it is Jesus himself who gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints, the work, the ministry, the edifying of the body of Christ. 
There's nothing wrong with loving and following a godly man who has taught you the word and helped you to know the joy and peace of God. But these people tore the church over their arrogant attachment. See, it's one thing to say, I just love Peter, you know, he... It's another thing to say, this guy is the single model for pastors. And all the rest of you are messed up. We are a better brand of Christian than you are because of him. Now what's notable here is, do you know that Apollos had been the pastor of this church for a while, but he left, and when Paul asked him to go back, he said, no, no way. He didn't want any part of that. And we know Paul didn't want any part of it, and I'm pretty sure we know Jesus didn't want any part of it. And we're not even sure if Peter ever was there. And so all these people had attached themselves to these teachers for various reasons, and then they were starting to tear the body of Christ and sort of form groups and argue the merits of which is better, and I'm sure which is worse. And what we need to understand is divisive arrogance is a work of our flesh. Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions. That's that word for tearing apart. Jealousies, outbursts, harass, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies. Envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. Isn't that a great neighborhood to live in? I'm sure all of these people thought they were the best and they were better than everybody else and I'm sure they had lots of reasons for it, but it's wrong. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary said this, division has always been a problem among God's people and almost every New Testament epistle, every book in the New Testament deals with this topic or mentions it in one way or another. Even the 12 apostles did, always, did not always get along with each other. Remember, they're walking down the road and they're having this argument and Jesus says, what are you arguing about? <laughs> well, we were trying to figure out which one of us is the best. Really? <laughs> You're walking with Jesus. <laughs> you guys must be grading on a curve. In all of their arrogant arguing, the Corinthian believers had failed to grasp a very important truth. Look at verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Is Christ divided? The rationale of unity is this. Christ is one. Paul is essentially saying here, have you thought this through? Is Christ, in other words, is Christ tearing himself in pieces so you can have your little preferential groups? The answer, of course, is no. Some of these Jewish converts should have at least known this verse from the Old Testament. The first of the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And somehow that, that truth of oneness should have gripped their soul. Now some people... Some of you, if you're an astute uh, student of the word, you'll, you'll say, well, I get what you're saying, Pastor Dave, but if, if we're really supposed to be one, then why are there all these different churches, first of all? 
Well, I think part of the answer comes here. And let me just touch on this, and we'll come back to it later. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. You see, this contention, this division in arguing about points of the law, for they are unprofitable and useful. Reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The scripture says very clearly there are times we should separate. There are times we should divide, but it needs to be over real, serious, significant things. Romans 16 says, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Even just the idea in, in, in this Corinthian church, if there were people who refused to come back together after this teaching, the rest of the body should have said, brother, you are living in sin. Christ is not divided. Now come and join us. And if he wouldn't, they should have, they should have separated themselves. Second Thessalonians really gives us the balance here, though. If anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed, yet don't count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now I'm thinking in, in, in a very large scale right now before I come back to the, this local body of Christ. There are people, there are churches all around us who believe pieces of the truth. There are churches in Ferndale where they don't believe any of the truth. And we have to be wise about that and separate ourselves. But, but, as the Apostle Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, if they are preaching the gospel, he said, I will rejoice. And so we don't count them as enemies, but we admonish them as brothers. There may be people who scripturally we cannot cooperate with, but we don't hate them. And we don't talk bad about them. That's, you know, if you've been here any length of time, you know that I do not fill my messages talking about other churches. We talk about what God says. But what about within the body of Christ right here? Within our closer brothers, how should we view people? We should view them as members of the body of Christ whom we love and are trying to come together with. We need to stop and any time we're tempted to, to tear at the unity, we need to say, wait a minute, Christ is one. The Apostle Paul goes on to talk about baptism. Apparently, some of these people said, well, I was baptized by this guy. I was baptized by that guy. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you. And he says, well, I did baptize this guy and this guy, and, I, and this guy here. But I really didn't baptize very many because that's not my mission. My mission is to preach the gospel. Not to say that baptism isn't important, but he said what, what is most important, the absolute center and first priority is the gospel Warren Wiersbe, again, uh, quoting him, said this, Instead of emphasizing the message, the gospel, the Corinthians emphasized the messenger. They got their eyes off the Lord and onto the Lord's servants, and this led to competition. We might be unique in some ways, but when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the core of God's truth, we've got to come together and encourage each other and work together 
so that God's work is done. Do you remember this episode from the life of Christ? Now after six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Just before this, Jesus had said to them, you know, I'm going to show you what the glory of the kingdom is like. He gave them a little foretaste as an encouragement to, to serve him. And he was transfigured or changed before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Now, can you imagine if you're Peter, James, and John? And Jesus says, hey, come on, let's go up the top of this hill. I want to show you something. And they go, okay, do to do to do And all of a sudden, flame on. And there's Moses and Elijah. Now, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah, but somehow in the communication they knew that it was. And, and think about Jewish guys all their life talking about Moses. And here he is. I mean, talk about being starstruck. Not Peter. Peter answered and said, Jesus, answered to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, three little booths, three little tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him! Shut up, Peter. And when you think about it, here you are, you're seeing the something of, not the whole, but something of the glory of God for the first time, and you're talking? Just fall down on your face and worship. This is my beloved son, hear him. The Corinthian believers were so focused on their own groups and their own agendas that they were covering up Christ. We're here to live Christ and preach Christ and help others know Christ. And in order for that to happen, we have got to work together by having his mind, his judgment, and speaking his words. Heavenly Father, help us. Our flesh does want to make us into something it wants to divide up into groups so that we can be the president of that group or whatever oh lord help us to love each other help us to love our brothers in the greater body of christ help this church to think and judge and speak with the mind of christ i pray in his name amen